Welcome to The Breadwinners, the podcast about the never-ending hustle and its impact on all aspects of our lives. We're interested in what it takes to keep everything going. This podcast is about working, family, research, and policy. We consider the research, talk to experts, and share our takes on what we're all learning about breadwinning. Each week, I'm joined by Jennifer Owens. She writes about working, wellness, and women, and founded the Working Mother Research Institute. And I'm joined by Raquel Ellison. She is an executive coach and management consultant who works with companies big and small to design workplace policies that work for all employees. And we're going to talk about a lot of employees today. We're going to talk about hourly employees. And we have a wonderful stat that says there are 82 Point three million of us in America who are paid an hourly wage. And that is 58% of all wage and salary workers. Gosh, that's a lot. That is a lot. And you know that it makes me think often when I drive home to my hometown on the west side of Cleveland, you see all the kids working wage jobs because, you know, that's what we all did. But I think it's a, it's, well, obviously, if it's 58% of all workers, it's adults too. Like we're all, that's a really common setup for job now. Yeah. I sound surprised, but I guess it's like I haven't had an hourly job except by consulting in a long time. Yeah. It's just one of those things when you look over the wall and you're like, geez, that's the majority of the working public here. And one of the things with that, though, is that strata of working, they don't control their own schedules. Right. We were talking about it at Working Mother a million years ago. We did the best companies for hourly workers and consistent scheduling was a huge issue at the time. Yep. I think that's really something that companies who have hourly workers and the hourly workers themselves have to deal with. And as we know, irregular work scheduling leads to happy, satisfied, non-stressful situations. No, I'm just Irregular work does? I'm just... (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. I knew it all along that that was the secret to happiness. I need to be more irregular. Irregular. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, how in the world, because I see the world through a working mother lens, how as a working parent do you freaking deal with childcare if your schedule is skit-scatting all over the day? And the week, you know, you don't, you know, oh, you got scheduled for Monday. You got scheduled for, you know, what this week you're working Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, next week, it's Tuesday, Friday, Monday, who knows? Not to mention the hours within those days that it's just impossible to build a working family life around. No, it it is impossible. I remember reading, who wrote this article? link to it. But there was an article about kind of 24 hour daycare that existed a while ago. Yes. Yes. I remember that. that. Yep. I do. And that is to not acknowledge. I mean, I acknowledge the fact that it's one of the joys of shift based work and hourly work is that if you have control over it, you can set a schedule that works with your family. I used to know a couple when, when I was in newspapers where the husband specifically became a copy editor so that his wife, who was a teacher, they could do childcare, two ships passing in the night, but they did it so that they saved money and it was always a parent home, the kids. And so they picked shifts, essentially, even though they both salaried, but they picked a work life that worked for them. But they were able to, you know, they were in a position to actually control their shifts in the sense, which is different than what we're talking about. Whereas 
you know, there have been these attempts to have fair scheduling. And there's a, what is Seattle has the secure scheduling ordinance Mm -hmm. that requires major employers to post schedules 14 days in advance. You know, like one of the ways you can do flexible work is team-based scheduling Mm -hmm. for shift workers. Often you would hear pushback from companies with shifts based employees, workforces say, oh, we can never do flexible work because, you know, you got to cover shifts and all that. And and it has been shown that you put shifts together and I'll cover you this week. You know, you cover me. But within that, the only really way you can do that, if you know what the shift is going to be two weeks from now and plan ahead. Right. Yeah. And, and then, of course, there is the other big, terrible impact, which is the weird word of clopening. Basically, you have employees close and open. Oh, clopeting. You yeah. said that before and I didn't catch that term. Yeah. That, you know, there were these shifts where, you know, you get to shut the place down at midnight and then you're reopening at seven the next morning. Like you're not, you know, they, there are places where they'll have best practices that there has to be a certain set number of hours between the end of a shift and the beginning of a shift. Right. I mean, I'm not sure. Does that count as the night shift? If you're, it does, right? I if think you, so. Yeah. Right. Let's call it that way. <laughs> Let's call it that way. So working the night shift is associated with higher absenteeism and lower productivity, which is not, not, not surprising. Whereas flex time is, is the opposite. Right. So, but I, I definitely know people, nurses in particular, who've chosen to work the night shift or that I know nurses in particular, just to kind of get it, work kind of a compressed work week, which has flex That time. they choose, right? I, it always comes down to autonomy, you know, like, right. like, like trusting, yeah. right, and control of being able to trust your employees to, and have enough resources that you can cover all the shifts. Yeah, that's a big piece of it. Well, and it must be more difficult because I know there are in big companies, they have automated scheduling because they're trying to be so efficient with, you know, we humans are expensive. Labor is expensive. Right. So, right. you know, like how can I have, you know, I don't want to have people standing around not doing anything when it comes to retail on the floor and all that sort of stuff. But I don't know, is there anything that they can do in terms of like matching schedules to employee needs? Right. Well, they call that person schedule fit. Oh, okay. There's an article that actually just came out in, or pretty recently came out. Um, it was July, so <laughs> so years ago in pandemic. Time. Yeah, yeah, in pandemic time. So that was the last eon. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Rethinking work schedules, consider these four questions. Um, and it was in Harvard Business Review. And so one of the questions was really thinking about how to align work schedules with the needs, desires, and personalities of employees, right? So thinking about not only what works best for the schedule, but also some employees might be better at working the night shift, right? Yeah. Some employees might be, you know, they might be night owls. Some employees might be morning people. Well, and you've talked about this before, about having a worker-centric view, like as we come back from the pandemic seems to be what that question is calling for is that the answer is, what if you put the worker at the center and then figure out the schedule? Would that be so bad? Can you do that? Well, that's the big question. Can you do that? Right. Did I just add fifth question to Harvard Business Review? Because if I did, I'm very proud of myself. 
you know, I think one of the points that they make in this article is, you know, we've changed so much. We've given employees so much autonomy in this pandemic to decide where they work. And, you know, for the most part, and this can be extended to when they work as well. Okay. And did that cause the apocalypse? Because I'm just wondering <laughs> if, if, uh, if remote That's work when it all killed this. Apart. Okay. Got it. On it. When it all falls down. Yeah. Yeah. I think it didn't. It definitely left a lot of people scratching their heads. There's still people, you know, I mean, I, I'm curious about how companies like Starbucks, companies that rely on this hourly scheduling in a very specific way, how that's going to work, how they're really going to be able to give more autonomy. Yeah, they do know that, what is it? It's the shift project at Harvard. So we're all about Harvard today. Studying the impact of what Seattle did in terms of having like schedules you could rely on. Right. That they found that more predictable hours led to increased job satisfaction, happiness, restfulness, and declines in material hardship. If we could just start from the basis of a worker-centric approach where right. we're saying, hey, here's how your schedule will look. Do you have a problem with it? It, it seems like it'd be the better way to go as, you know, if we've all managed people. Like, wouldn't you want to know what the deal was two weeks from now so that you would know, oh, here comes a problem. I, I don't get why you wouldn't, but I think maybe it, it ties back to those like automated scheduling things where they're like, you know, we're just moving pieces around a, a chessboard. Right. I mean, we also have to remember, I think we being companies, because somehow that's us now. <laughs> You're the man. I've, we've, we've made you the man. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there are costs. I mean, we've sort of touched on this throughout this conversation, but, you know, there are costs. There are costs to, we know that absenteeism, that lower productivity, that impacts on health, those are not just the employee's problem, right? They are costs to the employer and in a number of different ways. And there's even a stat, which is a little bit scary, that there was a 2016 study that tracked 189,000 women for a period of over 24 years. And these folks had rotating night shift schedules for more than 10 years, had a 15 to 18% greater risk of developing coronary heart disease. (laughs) So we're not, you know, we're talking about some major major impact. And it's, it's not, I think that some companies have the tendency to be short-sighted about that without thinking about the broader implications of that. Right. And then, you know, there's this straight-up cost of turnover. If your employees can't live while they work, they will leave. And then even if there are lots of people looking for work, you still have to find them, vet them, onboard them, which is all... And then also the time that, you know, during the finding, there's no one working that gig. And then you have other people maybe having to fill in and then they get annoyed and it, it lowers the morale and the engage, you know, like all that stuff is a hard cost. It's always hard to figure out, you know, that was always a thing with the working mothers stats we did. I had found one study that put it at 150% of someone's salary, you know, turnover between the gap, the onboarding, the ramp up and all that sort of stuff. I always felt that was a bit of a wishy-washy stat, but I used it because I needed some sort of number. So 
I showing you behind the scenes of how I <laughs> came up with some stats. Thank you for the economist who came up with that one because I used it all the time. But even so, it, it's directional in the sense of at any level in your organization, someone leaving is going to cost you money. Yeah. And so figuring this stuff out. Now I'm thinking of back when we started Best Law Firms for Women at Working Mother. I, I feel like I'm going through a whole history lesson today in my head. The original setup of law firms at the time was that they completely afford to have a massive turnover of new associates. It was built into the model. So they never, and, and I'm talking super broadly here, but they didn't have to change their ways as an industry because there was always more and they could afford that 150% cost per associate turning over. It was built into the model somehow. And then there was a fallout in however the legal industry works, and it became much more incumbent upon them to save money by making it more palatable to work in white shoe corporate law firms. In addition to trying to be more humane, what we were trying to exploit with showing best practices. So I think that um, all these things, like it just can't always be a, a way of running your company where you build in that much turnover. Yeah. I was going all the way around the block to get back to this, but thank you for following <laughs> me. But the, the point being that uh, it just doesn't seem like a great way to run a company to be anti-worker. I guess that's what I'm saying. That's what I've always been saying. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, that is the refrain. It is the refrain. I think that, I think what we're seeing though, one of the conversations that I've been having is, you know, one, I wonder if companies would feel differently if there was more support to the employee to figure it out. I'm not saying, you know, when we're talking yeah, about yeah. schedule fit, that's one thing. But I, I think that what I'm seeing in my workplace is folks are thinking about how to bring people back from leave, uh, from leave, from, from, from home. And, you know, they're also recognizing people aren't quite ready and prepared to do that. Like there are skills that can be built, right. To help them, help them figure out how to, yeah, right. You know, to help somebody figure out person schedule fit, you know, ultimately the onus is on them, but there can be ways to, to kind of create more awareness and, and better skills at how to nav around how to navigate. And you know what that does? It, it, that was one of the things we learned with doing the hourly workers list, it didn't matter where you are, if you're hourly, you're salaried. But if you felt a connection to your company, if you felt there was things you could learn, places you could go in your, then it became a career. It could be an hourly career. There's, you know, like it doesn't matter the payment mechanism. It's how involved and engaged you are with the company. And I think that's a step to having that feeling and feeling that engagement there was a story that we love to tell. There was a lady at Petco who had seen something, you know, like some sort of like, you know, you're doing it wrong. We could be saving blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know why? Because she's on the floor. She's dealing with your customers every day and she was an hourly worker. And then they promoted her into salary because the minute they saw how smart she was and she had come up with this idea on how to think, make things more effective on the floor. They were like, we need you in management. And and if I remember the story right, they really 
had to court her into it because that mm. was not the job she wanted. You know, mm. like she's like, I actually chose to work this way because it worked for my family, and they waited for her basically for wow. years, and that and she had moved into like management and the like. But yeah, that's the other part of that. This, these are every single employee is a valued resource. If we can get this conversation going, you know, and have respect, man, it, it, you'll just be so much better. Yeah. Yeah. It's a balance. You know, we had that in uh, talking about flexible work. You know, it, people say, well, how do you get a flexible work schedule with my boss? Well, well, one of the things you have to do is put yourself in the shoes of your manager. What is it that will make them feel comfortable and, and all that sort of jazz? So, it, yeah. I think you're right, you know, now that I've put you in the shoes of the man <laughs> to represent the companies, that, that, you know, it has to benefit them as well. They can't just be giving, giving, giving. Yeah. It's, it's a business. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think coming back that now that we've proven or we've at least experienced more autonomy among our employees? What do I, I think, think coming a, back? What do I yeah, think? Yeah, like, well, this impact hourly workers, like I think it's going to impact salaried workers. Oh, for sure. I think it's going to impact salaried workers. And I think, but, uh, you know, I think we can't look at the autonomy in isolation, right? So we've, so there's just a, a number of factors to consider. One of them is, sure, we've had more autonomy. The other is we've all gone through a collective trauma to different degrees. And there's a fear about going back you know, that is legitimate around public health, right? So there's a lot of stress that workers are under, and I just don't know how we parse those out. But I think generally people are going to come back and have, I think my concern would be that folks are going to come back and there's going to be this culture of working all the time because we've had people... Because we've lost something we're trying to gain back. Yeah. That's yeah. part of it. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah. And that, you know, a lot of these hourly worker jobs are women, right? Yeah. It, it's hospitality. It's retail. It's, it's even uh, childcare shifts, you know, it, daycare centers. A lot of these jobs are women. Or, these are the jobs that are disappearing or disappeared way early on. We have an early episode uh, way early in the pandemic, talking about the, all the jobs that were oversubscribed or are oversubscribed by women, especially women of color, that when if we if we try to plug back in and try to scramble to somehow make up lost ground or whatever we're doing, I I look forward to having that conversation with you in about six months' time. Oh <laughs> <Right. laughs> uh, well, thank you. I think this is very interesting because this is really is the topic that will come back. This is the part of the economy it completely unstable, right? Are these industries that are hourly worker predominant? Yeah. So, for sure. Well, for sure. thank you for joining us on the breadwinners. We love breadwinners on the hourly side, on the salary side. We love all the breadwinners. <laughs> uh, you will find links to what we discussed in the episode description. Email us anytime at the pod at gmail.com or visit us at thebreadwinnerspodcast.com. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast. Isn't my co-host delightful? She just makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and to rate and review it. It really does help us grow. And until next week, keep hustling.
This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM. Women's voices amplified.